Well, today I am going to try to wrap up the whole Unstoppable series with a final message that I hope will really stick the landing as to how we should be living if we want to get in on what God is doing in our world today. If you don't care about getting in on what God is doing, then never mind. But I'm convinced most Christians don't just want to go to heaven. They want to live for something bigger. They want their lives to count. They want to get in on what God is doing. But sometimes we need some help to know, well, how do I get in on what God is doing? And that's what we've been digging into. And we're going to do it one final time today. And get this. I know a lot of churches and a lot of pastors today, Sunday, all over our nation are preaching a, a radically different message than they had planned in light of the election. Here's what your pastor's doing. Exactly what he'd planned. But listen. Not as if it didn't happen and doesn't matter. Because let me tell you something really cool. As I looked at the passage that I had selected over a year ago. I go away for three days and pray and fast and plan all the preaching a year in advance. I'm often amazed, and I was again, that the passage by God's spirit that he had led me to select for this Sunday. That when I chose it, I did not have in mind it would be a Sunday after a presidential election is perfect. Listen, I know what took place on Tuesday in a church family our size. I know what happened on Tuesday made some of you very happy, some of you very disturbed, and a bunch of you somewhere in the middle. And this is a great passage for us to look at, to say, okay, now what? Now what? Because get this, in, on a day and a week that, I mean, the blogosphere is exploding, news networks are exploding, just people are going crazy about all that's likely to change and what might happen next. Uh, take a deep breath, believers. God's message hasn't changed. And the mission for Grace Fellowship hasn't changed at all. There's some things that happen to be the most important things that haven't changed at all. And so regardless of how you voted on Tuesday, here's the other thing I want you. I want to remind us all as we move towards our passage today. That for Christians, the turning point in all of history, listen to me, should never be about a presidential election or any world ruler. Christians of all people should have a bigger picture. Christians of all people should understand that the turning point in all of history has never taken place on the first Tuesday after the first Monday of any November. It happened on a weekend outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha when the Son of God hung on a cross and was made sin for us and God's wrath was poured out on Him instead of us and the veil in the temple that had separated sinners from a holy God was torn from top to bottom on Friday. The stone was rolled away on Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead conquering sin and death and Satan and hell. And that's the greatest need for Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike. That was the turning point in all of history. That weekend. So don't lose sight of that. No elected official or U.S. president could ever have fixed our biggest problem. And no elected official or president can ever take the place or take away from us our greatest hope now because it's fixed outside of the political process on King Jesus, not President anybody. King Jesus. 
King Jesus. And so five days after the election, we need to keep this in mind. Sure, I'll be honest with you. I hope, yes I do as a pastor, I do hope that we as Christians will have greater freedoms to spread the message and to live the mission under President Trump than we had under President Obama for eight years. Sure. But listen to me. Our hope is never in who's seated in the White House. It's in who's seated on a white horse and is coming back to rule the nations. And his name is King Jesus. Jesus. You ready now? Here we go. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and let's find out how should we be living in days like this. How should we live in days like this? 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lust, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. He's not saying someone stood in a graveyard and preached to dead people. He's saying people that are dead now also heard the gospel. The same gospel that was preached to people that are now dead is being preached to people who are alive. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end Of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, before we jump into the details of what I want to show you about how to live, I want to set things up for you. I want to give you two frameworks to build this around. Two things I want you to get in place before we dive into the details. Number one, who are we? I'm talking to Christians. If you're here and you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. But consider this a fireside chat and you get to listen in on this. Who are we as Christians? Identity is crucial. Where are we in history? Timing is critical. You got to know who you are and where you are in history if you want to live for what matters most. you got to keep those two things in, plan, in mind, and we lose sight of that readily. Who? Don't let something else define you. Who are you? And don't forget and start living like, oh, where are we in history? So let's answer that first question. If you're here and Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you've put your trust in him, you've been forgiven, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, who are you? Peter answers it in chapter 1, verse 1. Well... Jump there with me. 
Go backwards to chapter 1, verse 1. Let's find out who we are. Who are we if we're Christians? Chapter 1, verse 1 in 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion. You might have a version that says exiles. You might have a version that says foreigners. You might have a version that says temporary residents. However your version translates it, you're in exile. You're in a foreign land. You're not home. But that's not all he says. Look in verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Get this. You're an exile in a foreign land, but you are elect. Here's how I would tell it to you. Look at me. You are the selected rejected. Okay? Isn't that good? It's like, oh. It's what the Bible actually teaches. God has chosen you. If you go on to 1 Peter 2, you get some more details. You don't go there now, but he says, you're a chosen generation. He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about believers, New Testament believers under the covenant of grace. You're chosen people. You're high priests now. You live for something different. That You may proclaim the, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But the world rejects you on a regular basis. They can't stand it because what? You will no longer run in the same way that you used to run. You won't think like they think. You don't say what they say. You don't do what they do. You won't chase after the same things they chase after. And they hate it. They hate you. So you're chosen by God and rejected by this world. The Bible teaches this in more than one place. But take heart, Christians. Listen. Listen, take heart. As exiles living in a foreign land, our first, we need more Christians to recognize this and get a hold of this. Our first and primary citizenship is in heaven, not the United States. Read Philippians 3. I have a citizenship in heaven, a different kingdom, a bigger deal, a more important. I am grateful for America, but I am more grateful to be a citizen of heaven and in the kingdom of King Jesus. That's so much better. Our first and primary citizenship is in heaven, not the United States. Our first and primary authority is God's word, not the U.S. Constitution. And our first and primary commander-in-chief is King Jesus, not President Obama, nor President-elect Trump. So keep that in mind, Christians. Don't hear me trying to start a riot and say, so go out there and rebel and break laws. I'm just saying, sleep good. Settle down. We're part of something bigger and of all people. We should recognize that. We shouldn't be running around crazy and going nuts just like everybody else. Bigger kingdom. Higher authority. Different commander in chief. And that should lead you to live differently. So that's the answer to who are you? The selected rejected. Let's answer the second question. Where are we in history? Where are we at this point in history? Jump back to 1 Peter 4, verse 7, because he answers it there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And here's how I'd like to answer it for you. I love to read, so let's think of it in terms of a book. When I'm reading a book sometimes, especially a long one, I'm starting to uh, struggle to keep going. I like to consider, where am I in the overall flow of this whole thing? Am I in the preface? Am I in the first few chapters? Am I in the middle of it? Or am I in the conclusion with this whole thing about to be wrapped up? Look at what 1 Peter says. Verse 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 7. But the end 
of all things is at hand. Your version might say near. The Greek word actually means approaching and it's right on us. Now, let me go ahead and give you a disclaimer that we don't have time to dig into. If you're already pushing back and saying, yeah, 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 you Christians have been saying that, well, for about 2,000 years now, and he hadn't come back and it doesn't happen. Peter anticipates that and he addresses it in his second letter. And the Bengals aren't playing until tomorrow night. So you've got lots of time today to go home and read your Bible some more. So mark this down. Second Peter chapter 3. He gives an answer to anyone sitting here who says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been saying that so long and it doesn't happen. Read that. Second Peter chapter 3. But right now, stay focused. Don't go do it now. I've got stuff I want you to hear now. Just make a note. To go there this afternoon. That word, the end of all things is at hand, is the Greek word telos. And it doesn't mean termination. It means consummation. The consummation. It means a goal or a purpose is about to be achieved, accomplished. In other words, get this, folks. History is pregnant. Contractions are eight minutes apart. And history is about to birth all the purposes and plans and promises of God. All those prophecies through the Old Testament, my friend, if you're here and you're a doubter, check it out. They've happened, 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 happened. God is not a liar. And all that's yet to happen is going to happen. History, we are way down this path, my friend. History is pregnant right now. Contractions are eight minutes apart. And it's the consummation of all that God has been saying and planning and purposing. It's going to happen. That's where you are, believer. The selected rejected and stop wishing you lived some other time. I wish it was a hundred years ago and we were on a farm with fences and cows and it was a better day. Oh, I wish I was in the fifties and God has raised us up for this time in history. You get to live when history is pregnant. Now, when something's very pregnant, there's some pain associated. We got some greater pain. There's some fear that ripples through you. We are facing fears and pain and unsettledness that some Christians did not feel in the 50s. But God thought that you could be his ambassador and that you could be his selected, rejected in this pregnant point of history. Thank you. Are you scared? I'm scared. But I read his word. I read his word. And it settles me down to know he sees me. He has me here by design. And my only question then becomes, what do I need to know about how to live now? What do I need to know? What do I need to know? What do I need to know? Well, I better know who I am and I better know where I am. I'm an exile. Stop living like this is home. And so two things ought to come into play. If you frame these two things up, identity and timing, and the answer is exile, and we're in the final chapters, then it ought to to affect how you live. And here's two things that ought to start happening to you. If you have in mind, I'm in exile, and we're in the final chapters, you ought to feel odd on a regular basis. Don't hear me say be odd. Some of you are way too good at that. (laughs) Feel odd. And you ought to feel a sense of urgency on a regular basis. Oh my goodness, 
I need to live for what matters most. I need to get my finances under control. I can't keep living in debt over my head. I can't live, keep living from paycheck to paycheck. I can't keep trying to build bigger houses, better cars, more. We're not staying here, folks. It's almost over and we're exiles. Adjust your finances. Adjust your schedule so that you can talk to unbelievers and have them over to the house. Adjust your home. Adjust so that you can serve inside the church and outside the church. We're exiles in the final chapters. Let me ask you. You say you're a Christian. How often do you feel odd at work, in the gym, in the neighborhood? You hear me tell stories, folks. I I hope you don't make the mistake of thinking, I guess he does this with people because he doesn't feel odd. No, I feel very odd. I feel very out of place. I feel very awkward at neighborhood things. I feel it all the time. And it's a good sign. If you don't feel odd, something's not right. means you've settled in and you've become like them and you think like them and you have the same values as the world and something's not right. And if you also wake up day after day with just kind of like, ah, do another day, just do that living thing and earn another dollar and watch some TV and eat some Cheetos and think about next summer's vacation and what can I do to amuse myself? It's been a while since I had an adrenaline rush. Please, if you know the Lord and you know that history is pregnant, contractions are eight minutes apart, you live with a sense of urgency that your life matters, whether you've got a great job, crappy job, whether everything's right in your family or not right, you can still live for what matters most and should But beyond feeling odd and urgent, what would Peter say with a few more details as to how odd, urgent people would live? Two things I think Peter tells us. And you say, Brad, how'd you come up with two? I came up with two because in these 11 verses, two times he uses the word therefore. And it's followed each time by a command. So in light of all that's going on, if you'd started in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, therefore, do this. And then therefore, do this. Look at the first one. It's from verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. There's the first one. Then look halfway through verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful. We're going to talk about both. Let's start with the first. Verse 1, I think he is telling us, get ready to live radically different than the world around us. Get ready. If you're already living different. Do it more. If you're not at all, get going. Get ready to live radically different than the world around you. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. That word arm is the Greek word haplizo that means to put on armor or weapons. It means to prepare. And here's what I love. It means to get the right equipment for what you're about to face. It's similar language to what we saw with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, right? With spiritual warfare and he talked about the armor. But the armor Peter is talking about here is your thinking. Your thinking. Arm yourselves with the same mind as Christ. How are you going to do that? And here's what I want you to understand, folks. When, because he's mentioned mind, don't make the mistake of, of drawing the conclusion. It's just some things I need to think. I need to think about some things. Oh, that's only the start. He's talking about more than just believing 
some things. To arm yourselves is more than just to believe. See, think about it. When you became a Christian, it's like the lights came on. You think about it. In many ways, you got some new relationships, but was it not? Can you recall it? Almost like a download of biblical information. And you're just like, oh my goodness, I see things so differently. You got new biblical information about who God is, who you are, what's really going on in the world and what matters most. It was a truckload of information that either you didn't understand before or had no interest of before. And all of a sudden there's all this biblical information. But the danger is don't conclude that arm yourselves means believe it or even rejoice in it to some degree. To arm yourselves with it is more. I hope I've got you leaning forward saying, all right already, so what does it mean? Beg me. (laughs) Here's what it means. And I love it because by God's grace, it's something that I have tried and I continue to try to work hard on in my own life so that I will go into each day, not just informed, but armed. I believe what I'm about to share with you is the reason that I'm still your pastor that I have not gone off the rails, that I've not done something heinous, that I still love Jesus, I mean love Jesus, that I'm still excited about God's word, I mean excited about God's word, that I still am so thrilled to be a part of his kingdom and I get excited. What he is telling you to do is what I've tried to do, not perfectly, but oh, how I would love for more of you to do it. Here's what it is. To arm yourselves means that after you've read your Bible, now let's hit pause. That just wiped out some of you. I'm sorry to say, but this message is about to tell you what to do after you've read your Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, I don't know how to help you. And I don't know how many times I have to say this. I don't hate you, but I do feel sorry for you. You're gonna get slaughtered. You won't make it. And the more we head into these final days, you won't make it. I'm talking to you Christians who read it, but you'd still say, I don't get that much out of it. No, You read it. And after you read it. So what I'm about to share with you may mean you got to start reading less. The goal isn't how much of it you can read. It's to arm yourselves with it. After you read it, you ask questions. You sit and you say, by God's spirit living in me, is there something here I could apply to my life? You pray it in. You take a verse and you pray it. You say, Lord, is there something here that if I was to get it fixed in my mind today, it would change how I feel. My feelings have been way over here. Is there something if I got it fixed in my mind and chewed on it some more right now and lingered over it, it would change how I feel today. Is there something here that exposes in my own life My life is way out of alignment with this. I need to repent right now. Is there any place I need to repent? Is there anything that I should fix in my mind that would change my feelings? Is there anything I could apply to my life? Sit, soak, think. That is what it means to arm yourselves with the same mind. Let me illustrate it for you this way. How many of you have ever tried to take a magnifying glass and set something on fire? All men. Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) What are little girls doing? I don't know. But fire is like one of our greatest joys. It's, it's only, we just try to stop it as we get older. But ladies, no, we still want to set things on fire. We really do. 
But if you've ever taken a magnifying glass and tried to light a leaf on fire or, or torch an ant or burn a piece of paper or burn your entire parent's house down, then you know something. You were dependent on something you could not control. What was it? You had to have blazing sunshine. Couldn't be cloudy day. You had, oh, and this, was, this is where, thank goodness, because little boys can't do this, there were fewer fires. You have to be able to focus Hello. <laughs> on the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't just like be wavering around the leaf and talking to a friend. I mean, you had to stay on the same point on that leaf and it's just barely starting to smoke. Oh, go, go, go. And you had to wait. Oh, we don't do that as boys. So you had to focus, you had to wait, and you had to have sunshine. And that's why there weren't more fires. Okay? But every now and then you got one, didn't you? Listen to me. That is exactly what I'm talking to you about. Doing what I'm saying that Peter is saying to arm yourselves is you take God's word after you've read it. If it's half a chapter, if it's four verses, and you take a magnifying glass and you take the extra time and say, now, I'm going to pray it in. I'm going to ask God, is there anything that's out of alignment with me? Is there anything that would change my feelings? Is there anything I should apply to my life? And I'll stay there. Not for hours, but just linger some. Listen to me. Sometimes there's not a fire. There are some days I read God's word. I hope this makes you feel better. I'm like, well, all righty then. The word of the Lord. But here's what I am seeing. If you'll do it day after day, week after week, month after month, you say, God, whether there's a fire or not, I'm coming back because I know there could be. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it slowly. I'm going to read it prayerfully. I'm going to read it thoughtfully. I'm going to read it open and humble that you would actually show me something and listen to me. Some days there's a fire that arms me. And I go into my day not just informed, but armed. Oh, how I long for more and more of the Grace Fellowship family to head into their days armed, not just informed. But it starts with being informed. So if you're still not reading your Bible, I love you. I really do. But it's like a dad. I'm not your friend. I'm your pastor. Hello. So dads sometimes say hard things, right? That's why I talk to you that way. Because you've got to read your Bible. Because it's just step one. There's so much else that needs to take place after that. But if you're not doing that, what would you need to adjust to arm yourself? Would you need to set the alarm just five, seven minutes earlier? Would you need to say, you know what? I'm not going to turn on Good Morning America. Here's the other problem. Some of you are reading God's word so quickly and with other things going on at the same time. What that is, is the magnifying glass moving around. I look at a few words and I look at the TV. I look at a few words and I talk to my wife who's getting dressed. That You'll never have a fire. I have to be alone and focused without distractions to get a fire. What do you need to change to get a fire? To arm yours. And and maybe you're saying, why do I need to arm myself? He tells us just two reasons. Look in verse two. You got to arm yourself before you go into your day because guess who goes into your day with you? You. Everywhere you go, you got you. And you have the same old desires you had. The spirit of the living God lives in you. And I wish you could say, and the old desires are dead. 
They're not, they're very much alive. So verse two tells you your lust, your desires, your pattern of what you used to want and used to do is still right there and would love for you to still chase after what you used to chase after. You're gonna have to arm yourselves so that you don't. And then verse four, it gets worse. Verse four says the world and your friends are gonna call out to you to run with them just like you used to. Run, do the same thing, come on, run with the pack. Come on, do the same things you used to do. That's what you're up against. So you've got to arm yourselves that you not do that. Look at verse four, where it says, the world, the world around you, oh, I lost my place. In regard to this, they think it's strange that you do not. That word strange is more than just, well, that's a little odd. They don't look at you and say, well, that's a little odd. It is the word exonizo that actually is a strong word that means they are shocked, astonished. And here's the piece that some of you need to understand with a connotation of offended and they resent it. Oh, don't you feel that, right? It's not like, I don't care if you want to love your wife and stay faithful. I don't care if you don't want to abuse alcohol. I don't care if you don't want to look at porn. They do care. They hate it that you won't do what you used to do. Why? It makes them feel bad. They feel exposed. They feel judged. And what are they going to do about it? Look at the end of verse four. Speaking evil of you. The 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 NIV says heaping abuse upon you. The word in the Greek is blasphemio. It's where we get our word blaspheme. What are they going to do? They're going to slander you. The word literally means to slander and to attack someone's reputation or character. We got to stop being so surprised. We said, well, that's not fair. That's not really what I said or what I did. Why are they spreading lies about me at work? Because you don't pad your expense account like they do. Because you won't get in the taxi cab in the city where the conference is and ride to the girly show with them. They don't just say, well, whatever. He wants to be by himself. They hate you and they want to slander you and attack your character because you won't run with them. If you've not armed yourselves with the same mind of Christ, you will cave in. That's the world we're living in. And he tells us ahead of time. So get armed, get armed, get armed so that you don't just go down in the battle with the temptation. Now for that piece that you're saying, but it's not right, but it's not fair. It's verse five is your answer. He gives us this comfort. Look at verse five. They will give an account for it. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Here's basically what Peter's saying. Notice he doesn't say run around and try to pick up the pieces and explain to everybody how what's being said about you isn't true. Defend yourself. Basically, he's saying you live to please God. You do God's will and you leave justice to him. He'll take care of it. He'll t- now, you may not see it taken care of in this life. But there's going to be a day of reckoning. It's not your job. Let God take care of that. You live to please him and to do his will. And you live like the selected, rejected in the final chapters of history. And they're going to attack you. They're going to heap abuse on you. They're going to slander you. Number two, he presses on us. Not just get ready to live radically different. He says, get serious about stirring up basic Christian disciplines with other believers. Look at it in verse seven. But the end of all things is at hand, okay? Then, then what do you want us to do, Peter? Therefore, be serious and watchful. 
Here's what I love when I dug into this. That word serious is the word clear-minded. And it's the same word that Mark used in Mark chapter 5. You remember the story about the demoniac that was living in a, in a graveyard, cutting himself, screaming, running, breaking chains, madman. And when Jesus encountered him, Jesus cast out not one, but about 6,000 demons. Because when Jesus spoke to him, they said, who are you? They said, we are legion. A legion was a word that meant a unit of Roman soldiers, 6,000 in number. He cast thousands of demons out of this guy and the city comes out to see it. And it says in Mark 5, he was clothed, sitting clothed and in his, do you remember? Right mind, it's the same word. So here's my point. The world thinks we're crazy. It's only Christians who even have the capacity to begin to live sane in touch with reality. As an unbeliever, you're the one that's living insane, chasing after your sin, even though it's destroying you and even though it never quite satisfies. That's why verse 3 looks the way it does. Look at verse 3. Notice in verse 3, it's not just a laundry list of sins. All the sins in verse 3, drunkenness, orgies, parties, these are all pleasures in excess. Why? Because they can't get happy. They're trying to fill the emptiness. They're just trying to fill this emptiness, and it's so dissatisfying. They're the ones that are running insane after things that won't satisfy and it and it destroys them and yet still they do it more he says be serious christians the fog is lifted for you you have a clear mind live for what matters most so if the fog is lifted then what should we focus on before i give you the details in verses 7 11 i want to point out two general comments that i think is very interesting when he says the end of all things is at hand therefore Be serious. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, so get serious about figuring out the exact date of when Jesus is coming back. That's the best thing you could do. If we're in the end times, pregnant, contractions, let's figure out the exact day. He doesn't say that. And that's what some Christians try to do. They go nuts with Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation and the dates and the monsters and on and on and on. Trying to decide who the Antichrist is. And it's almost always the president we have that they don't like. That's the Antichrist. He doesn't say try to decide who the Antichrist is. He doesn't say try to figure out which countries will be the countries that have that final big Armageddon battle in the valley. He tells us how to live. And you leave the exact date with God. Because Peter knows that Jesus already said, you're wasting your time to try to figure out the date. Think of all the books that have been written and all the unfortunate people that have sold their homes, put on a bed sheet and stood on the top of a mountain because 1984 on blah, blah, blah is going to be it. And then it's not. And they all sheepishly go back home and put real clothes on and, and wonder where they're going to live now. But yet people do it all over again. And then another book gets written saying, oh no, it's, you're not going to figure it out. You say, why Brad? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, he told us that you will not know, but of that day and hour, who knows? Not even the angels, but my father. Leave the date with God. Our concern should be, and so how should I live in a history point that is pregnant with contractions? How should I live should be our greatest concern. Not what is the date. Now, the second thing I want you to note that is surprising 
if these are the final chapters of history, our human logic would say, oh my goodness, if this is it, then now would be the time that we need to ramp up supernatural gifts to get people's attention. There ought to be more healings and more wonders and more miracles and more speaking in tongues and more eye-popping gifts being used by God's people. He doesn't say that. How about it that he points us to three basic Christian disciplines? Prayer, loving each other, and serving Using your spiritual gifts. He revisits basic Christian spiritual disciplines in a context of with each other, with each other, with each other. That's where he goes. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Let me ask you, how serious are you about prayer? I'm not asking you how many times have you said... I know I need to pray more. That didn't fix anything. It's time for God's people who are living in these chapters to stop saying, I know I should pray more and pray more. And that means you're going to have to change something. You're going to have to adjust something so that you can pray before you go in your day. So you can pray for your family. So you can pray for our nation. So you can pray for the president. So you can pray for your employees, employer. So that you can pray for your neighborhood. So you can pray about decisions. So you can pray, pray, pray. How serious are you about prayer? And what would you need to change to get serious? Secondly, he says, get serious about loving each other. And it's not just some fleeting, warm, fuzzy feeling that shoots through you occasionally. He says, and above all things, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for one another. And that word love is the, is the version, you know, there's multiple Greek words for love. This is the agape love, the one that's like God, which means you give for the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. And it means you're willing to lay aside your own sense of entitlement, privileges, and rights. And sacrifice for somebody else. That kind of love. And as if that's not radical enough, he sticks the word fervent in front of it to modify it up even more. Fervent agape. And here's what I love. The word fervent there, it doesn't mean don't think boiling pot and bubbly. Because that's what I thought. The word fervent there is a word that was used in the secular Greek culture to describe a horse stretched out at full gallop. You ever seen that? It's one of those amazing things to see. I love to see a horse not canter, not trot, gallop. Hooves aren't even touching the ground at point. Muscles are strained. It means to stretch and strain like a horse at full gallop. Now that to me gives us a picture that, whoa, that doesn't sound half-hearted, does it? In my love. I am to stretch and strain and to love all out and to not give up quickly. And here's what I love about the scriptures. Often the writers by God's spirit will anticipate what your pushback is. But I got hurt. I got sinned against in the family of God. Welcome to my world. Yeah. Yeah. Christians aren't perfect, folks. And as you live as exiles in a foreign land under stress and strain, we're going to say things and do things towards each other that we regret. 
and you're going to have to be willing to forgive. Notice what he says next. When he says, above all, be fervent in your love for one another. For love covers a multitude of what? You'll find a multitude of sin right here. Welcome. Don't come in here saying, oh, I'm tired of getting hurt at work and hurt and hurt and hurt. I've come to the safe place. Well, I hope it's somewhat safer. Only from the standpoint that I hope these people are more humble and know what to do with their sin when it happens. And because of the gospel, we have a reason to not cut each other off and say we're never speaking again. But we know how to resolve it because of the gospel and God's spirit. But there's going to be some messes and you're going to have to be willing to let some things go and let love cover it over and forgive. Or we'll never keep our love all out galloping fervent for each other. And then here I think this is interesting. There's a connection between 8 and 9. Look at verse 8. Then look at verse 9. I do not think he's changing subjects. He's still talking about love. And he's saying, let me tell you where that love should show up. Where? In our homes. Be hospitable to one another. It's that word we hit on in in the book of Romans when I talked about hospitality. Where you bring people in. Even people that might be different than you. I think it's interesting that in a book as weighty as 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all about suffering. In a book as weighty as 1 Peter, we get this simple little command. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Here's what I think is going on. The more we head into the final chapters of history, pregnant, groaning, contractions, the more you'll feel like an alien out there in the world, at work, in the gym, in the neighborhood, and the more we're going to desperately need to be in each other's homes with fellow Christians being encouraged with each other that there is a family. I feel like an alien out there, but I've got a family. I'm not the only one that thinks this way. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. We're going to need each other and we're going to need our homes more. We're going to need more than Sunday morning. You're going to need a midpoint in the week where you say, I'm about to go insane again and someone needs to give me some reality therapy at close range so I can think sane again in the home at close range. And so Christians, let me tell you something else that needs to happen as we get into this time and we're there. Our homes need to stop being a showcase for entertainment and need to be a place of grace. Whether it's got the best furniture or not, whether everything's clean or not. The reason we have people in so infrequently is we make such a big to-do about it. You don't have to clean all the windows inside and out before they come over. You know, get obvious garbage removed. Right? Undergarments. Please remove those from the living room. It's just basic stuff. Well, this past week for our small group, we tried to get it all ready, but it was one of those weeks where it didn't get all ready. So we just told everybody. Usually we said there's a bathroom in the hallway and there's another one downstairs. I just said the one downstairs, enter at your own risk. My son moved back in. He's using it. It's like a men's dorm. I don't know what you'll find. You got, if you really need to go, pray and go. But we didn't clean it. We didn't swab the toilet. We didn't pick anything up. I don't know what you'll find. But I'm being hospitable. There you go. Folks, we need to let up. We need to let up on our homes being a drawbridge that pulls up and we're done. We're going to need to be together with each other at close range in our homes. Because we feel like aliens so much of the time everywhere else we go. And then lastly... Serious about prayer. 
serious about loving each other and excited about serving and using our spiritual gifts. You say, where do you get that bread? Verse 10. Now, here's what I want you to notice also. Just like I pointed out what Peter doesn't get into, don't try to set the date. And don't look for super duper supernatural gifts. Notice what he does here. We have other places in the New Testament where he goes into great detail with gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. He doesn't do that here. You know why? He's not interested in you so much having all the details of which gift do I have. He just says, as each one, as each one has a spiritual gift, because every one of you have a gift. If you're a believer, use it as stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know what he's more concerned about? The more you feel like an alien in the final chapters, the more we need as much of God's grace as we can get. And he tells you where to find it. It's in each other. It's in each other. And that word manifold means multicolored. God's grace is going to look different through you than through you or you or you or you. But as we go into these times, folks, we can't have just 20% of the Christians aware of their gift and using it. It's not enough grace. We're going to need all the grace we can get a hold of to keep persevering and to arm ourselves and to not be stupid and live insane and to not get sucked in to run with them just like we used to. We need every believer recognizing God's grace flows through me. I need to exercise that for the good of God's kingdom. And here's what I also would suggest. These three basic Christian disciplines that he thumps happen best in small group at close range. Sometimes I, people say to me, do, do you believe in prayer? And does Grace Fellowship prayer, pray? Yes, in small groups. It wouldn't go well here in a room that seats 700. You can't hear each other. And just a few people who are comfortable in speaking in front of all these people would pray. We're no good. We pray in homes huddled up with each other. Yeah, we pray. How can you love each other? Better at close range. You'll know how to love them and what's going on. How can we serve each other and exercise our gifts? Better at close range with each other. Oh my goodness. I, I, I so often hope as the pastor that other people think or feel some of what I feel. And I'm a, I'm, every now and then God throws me a bone and says, yes, it's not just you. I'm like, oh, Hallelujah. And just two weeks in small group was one of those moments where a young lady in our small group that's a fairly new believer, she's certainly new to our group, and I have her permission to say this, she just spoke up in the middle of small group and said, oh, this was so good. And I didn't want to say to her, huh? Wow, we just birthed. And I'm at that point with small group, I'm like, eh, I miss the people I really knew and we were so tight. So I'm like, oh, well, this is good. She's like, this was so good. She said, I needed this so much. She said, I was so glad we were meeting tonight. We hadn't met in two weeks because I camped one week. And we did something else one week. So we hadn't met for two weeks. And she's like, oh my goodness. I have felt over the past few weeks like there was a wedge between me and God. And it's just been lifted tonight. It was so good to be with God's people. When I reached out to her to get permission to quote her... She said even more good stuff. She said this when I reached out and asked for permission to quote her. She said, I really did feel like I had a wedge between myself and God the past two weeks when we didn't meet. I was missing our small group folks. I wanted to hear how their prayers had been answered and how we could lift them up further. I, w 
I love this. I wanted to feel the volume of the Spirit turned up on high. I wanted to learn further about the great Lord that I call my Heavenly Father. Small group lets me experience all of this and so, so much more. I hope you know what she's talking about. And just like the magnifying glass, don't sit there and say, my small group is not the volume of the Spirit turned up. It's pathetic. Well, stay in there and there might be a fire one night. Just stay there. Stay there. Every night's not like that, but you go. And often, often, often you're so glad you went. You say, this was good, Vic. And I said, this is so good. It was so good. It was so, I feel like small group is reality therapy. Where we all come back to truth. To avoid the lies of the world. Okay, last thought. So what should motivate us, Brad? Why do we do this? Just for you? Why should we keep praying like this and loving like this and forgiving each other and serving? Second half of verse 11 tells us what your motive should be. Second half of verse 11. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh God, I pray I pray that you would stir us to make the necessary changes to arm ourselves rather than just inform ourselves as we head into our day. And oh God, I pray that you would get every believer here in our church family reignited about basic Christian disciplines of prayer and fervent love and serving using their gift that passes on grace, grace to others around them. 